following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to take a break from Mark today and next Sunday, and we'll come back into it for Sunday of December. If you use one of the Bibles in front of us, that's page number 957. We're going to read the first 17 verses together, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. If you're there, please look at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Let's pray. Father, we come and we ask that your spirit supersede this time, that our thoughts and our minds would be focused very, very clearly on the text before us today. That you will draw our hearts together, not just in these truths, around, but around these truths that will be drawn together with one another, but, but most importantly, that we will we'll be reminded of our great need of you, our continuing need of you, our, our need to, to persevere, to remain, to abide in, in you. And this table that you have given us to observe is such a beautiful picture of this. I pray that as we think about these things today, that you will guard our hearts and minds through the faith that we have in Christ Jesus and reaffirm our commitment to those things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can clearly see, in a few moments, we're going to be partaking of the Lord's table together. And if you're a regular here at Cornerstone, you know that typically when we, we observe communion together, I will take a few moments to remind us or challenge us with the significance of what this act represents. And, and normally in that reminder and in that challenge, there are a few things that I always say. They're kind of like part of my 
script, I guess, if, you, if I had one exactly. But for example, I always remind us that this act is one of only two rituals that, that the Lord gave to us to observe, uh, the other one being baptism. I always remind us that this act is supposed to be an act of remembrance and proclamation until the Lord comes. Remembrance in the sense that as we break this bread and drink this cup, we are remembering the suffering of our Lord. We are remembering his blood shed on our behalf and all that that entails for us. It's proclamation in the sense that we are reminded that this is not the end that this is just the beginning, that there is a greater and more perfect meal to come where we will sit down with Jesus for all eternity and enjoy that with him. I always remind us that this act does not in any way improve our standing before God, that you're not more righteous because you do this, you're not going to heaven because of it. All of, all of those reminders, they are part of my standard verbiage, if you will, when we observe the Lord's table together, and all of it applies today just as it has applied in every instance in the past. And yet this morning, I want to emphasize this act in a little bit different way, and I would do so by drawing your attention to the word communion itself, which I have used already this morning. The word communion has the idea of sharing together in some form of common participation. It has the idea of oneness and of, and of unity, of union in something, something that you're participating in. And while it could be used in many different contexts and of many different things, in this particular act, it reminds us of our union with one another, of our union with all believers throughout time and, and around the world who have also participated in this act. And most importantly of all, it it reminds us of our union with Jesus himself. And we could emphasize this union in so many different respects and so many different facets, but I would pick just three for you by way of illustration this morning. First, that we all break the bread and drink the cup reminds us that our union is based on the sacrificial death of Jesus. You know, we, we are a close church, we are a family, and, and that's a beautiful and wonderful thing, but I would just remind you this morning that our, our familiness, our closeness, the, the relationship that we share together is not based around shared affinities. We're not all here because we're in the same socioeconomic class, because we all have the same likes and dislikes, because we all root for the same teams. No, our, our friendships and our fellowship are based first and foremost on the gospel, and this, this act pictures that. Secondly, we do this act corporately as a body, as a group, not individually. This is why we don't give you like a little take-home you know, pack to go and do it when you get home together or by yourselves. We, we do this corporately to remind us that Jesus came and died for to save his church of which we are individually members. We, we tend to, and it's not bad to do this, it's right to do this actually, we tend to think of salvation in the very individual sense, Jesus died for me. He died for his church too. It's not inappropriate or wrong to think of that. In fact, it's very right to think of it that way. And as we come together around this table, we, we are doing this thing together. There's, a, there's value in the togetherness of it to remind us that Jesus came and died to save his church, of which we are just individual parts. And then thirdly, that we continually observe this reminds us of our continued need of Christ and of one another. You know, this isn't a one-and-done thing. It's not like after you get saved, there's like an initial, you know, 
time of observing the Lord's table and then you're done for the rest of your, your time as a believer. No, no, we continuously come back to this ritual to remind us of our continued dependence on and faith in the gospel and of our hope in Christ and of his return. And so it's these three ideas that our union is built first and foremost around the gospel, not around anything else, that we are a part of Jesus' church and that we need to continuously stay faithful to and dependent on the gospel that have brought me to 1 Corinthians 10 this morning. This passage itself falls within a much uh, larger and actually different context than where I'm going with it today, but I'll connect it for you so you see why I came here. It, it falls within the context of a, of a question about Christian liberty. So, so uh, specifically, if I could be, uh, just make it very clear, it's a question about whether or not Christians could or should eat food that has been offered to or dedicated to an idol, okay, a false god. And this is not an issue we run into a lot in our day and age, so for us sometimes it's hard to connect. But in the city of Corinth, where, where Paul is writing to, this church is located, where he's writing to them, idol worship is rampant. And so this question of, is it okay to eat food that has been dedicated to an idol? It's a, it's a real question. It has real significance for them. And you had two basic views on this matter going on here in Corinth, and Paul's going to address each side. On the one hand, you have a group, it's actually the mature group, who recognizes that there is no such thing as an idol. They're just pieces of wood and stone. They're images. They're pictures. There's nothing else. And so you can take a food or any anything else that you want to offer and dedicate it to or offer it to this idol, and it's, it's nothing. A stake is a stake. It's, it doesn't matter if it's been offered to Zeus or Athena or whoever. It's, it's nothing, and so for them, they would eat whatever was put in front of them. Um, there's another group of believers, though, who didn't feel quite so free in this matter. You know, they may uh, have also recognized to a point that these idols are nothing, but, but maybe because of their background and their former worship of these idols, for them it's a big deal. And if nothing else, they recognize that so many other people around them see real significance in these idols that for them, when they, when they see that stake that's been offered up to Zeus, they're like, well, it's not just a stake, it's, it's Zeus's stake. And I don't really want anything to do with, with Zeus. And so for them, they felt like they couldn't eat this food. So these are the, the two points of view in question in this larger section. And Paul begins addressing this question in chapter 8, and he goes all the way here through chapter 10, where our passage is located. And if you would go through that entire section, what you would find is that in the end, the thing that Paul is most concerned about with this particular question or any other that is like it is does this thing in any way put a stumbling block before the faith of our brothers and sisters? And some of you, depending on your background, when you hear the word stumbling block, you think you know, something that might cause us to sin. Paul's not just specifically addressing something that might cause us to sin. No, he's talking about causing someone to, to fall away from their faith in Christ, to walk away from the gospel. And you see that he is very concerned that these believers would not do that, that they would do nothing that would, would cause their brothers and sisters to struggle, that they, want, they would hold fast to what they believe, that they would stay firm in their commitment to Christ, stay firm in their commitment to the gospel. And it's that concern and that emphasis that is most beautifully expressed and most poignantly applied here in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 17. So let's just take a few moments to walk through these verses and notice a couple of things. First, in verse 1, 
And you'll see that he begins to remind them of the reality of Israel's visible union. And he says here, if you look at verse 1, that our fathers, remember Paul is Jewish, so as he's speaking, he's speaking about the fathers of Israel. He says, our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And I'll just pause and, and, and just make sure you understand what he's making reference to here uh, in this section. It's, it's the Exodus event, and it's the wilderness wanderings of Israel. And as you look at this, notice the repetition of the word all, right? It, you see it over and over again. God led them all via a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. They all went through the Red Sea together to escape the Egyptians. He likens this to baptism in that they all went through the cloud and sea under the leadership of Moses. They all ate the manna from heaven. That's the spiritual food. They all drank the water in the wilderness that was miraculously provided by God. This is the spiritual drink. And in a really interesting note that we do not have any time to address today, he tells us that the source of this miraculous provision was none other than Jesus himself. And so if you're not picking up on it, or you're not catching it, he is using terminology and ideas that are very, very similar, in fact, identical to what we experience as the church now. All of them experience all of these things, but now notice verse 5. Nevertheless, despite all of these shared external experiences that they all went through together, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so, so they all, from the outside, experienced these events and these blessings together. If you look at them from, from like a third-party perspective, they all seem to be the same. But, but in reality, on the inside, they're not all the same. They're not all changed. They had a shared external experience, but not a shared internal one. And this is what Paul is about to apply to the Corinthians. He writes, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And if you know anything at all about Israel's history in the wilderness, you know that in time, the true internal allegiances and motivations of the people began to show themselves. And Paul references here four specific examples of, of sins that the people of Israel showed, and he, in each case, draws our attention to a, a textual reference that he has in mind. And this is not an exhaustive list of Israel's sins in the wilderness, by the way. It's just representative of, of what he's trying to do. So he says, do not be idolatrous. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a reference to the golden calf incident. While Moses is up on the mountain, Aaron fashions a golden calf and they dance around it and worship it as God. He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This was the day that, that Israel worshipped Baal at Peor, and, and God sent a pestilence among them, and it only stopped when one of the priests took a javelin and pinned a man and woman together who were in the act of immorality. God looked at his zeal and ended the pestilence. He says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. 
and were destroyed by serpents. This is the, the story of the bronze serpent raised up in the wilderness. Nor grumble, he says, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And boy, uh, there's so many places to turn for Israel grumbling. It's kind of hard to, to uh, limit it to one particular, but I would turn to Numbers 14 because it's here in the midst of their grumbling that God pronounces his judgment upon the people who had come out of Egypt and says, none of these who have grumbled will enter the promised land. I'll let Joshua, I'll let Caleb, I'll yet let the young people, but all of these other ones, they're going to die. So here they all have this, this shared external experience, right? But, but internally, it is very clear that they are not of one heart and mind, and this eventually shows itself both in their sin and in God's response to it. And having made that general point now, that you see the general point he's making, having made this general point from Israel's history, he now begins to apply it very specifically to the Corinthians. In verse 11, he writes, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, he's saying this was written so that we could learn from this. These stories aren't just told to give Charlton Heston a script, right? It's, it, there's a larger purpose to Old Testament stories than and what you might first see at your, your first reading, they are written to teach us, to prepare us, to warn us, to guide us. And that is exactly what Paul begins to do now in these next six verses. He says, therefore, based on all of that, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This is a warning to persevere to hold fast to what we have believed, to, to not give in to sin, to, not, to, to use Israel as an example, to want to return to Egypt. Unless you think you are above that danger, unless you think that's a warning for someone else, remember that no temptation has overtaken you that is, that is not common to man. Anything that someone else has done, any way in which someone else has fallen, any way in which someone else has, has failed to live up to what they have spoken of is something you can do as well. There's nothing in you that's better or worse than anyone else. The sin of any one person is potential in the sin of all people. However, hope in the midst of that comment, God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but... With the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And, and, and this is a reminder that the battle against sin and the battle for faith isn't ours alone. I mean, yes, we are called to persevere. That emphasis is put on us to, to hold fast to what we believe. But understand that, that undergirding all of that and enabling all of that is God's loving preservation of us. He will not allow us to be tempted, not his children. He will not allow them to be tempted or tested beyond what they can handle. He will sustain us and our faith. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from anything that would set itself up to take God's place. Flee from anything that would draw us away, our hearts away from truth. Flee from, from anything that would shake your confidence in the finished work of Christ and the gospel and your one and only hope of salvation in Jesus. And then notice where he turns. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
the bread that we break, is it, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. He turns to this picture of our shared external experience in the Lord's table, and he reminds us that what we are truly sharing in this ritual is our participation in the body and blood of Jesus. That we're reminding ourselves of that. And I really think that, that his implied point here is that we should not turn away from these things to evil like the children of Israel did. That, that, that just as we continuously come back to this table and we remember and proclaim our Lord's death until he comes again, we must, we must continuously come back to our faith in Jesus alone, to Christ alone, and to this church that he is building. We must hold firm. We must persevere in our faith. We must not be tempted to turn away. And, and of course, this isn't the only place in the New Testament that talks about this issue of people walking away from their faith, the danger of that, the need to persevere, the need to hold fast to what we have been taught is throughout all of the New Testament epistles. But but where it particularly stands out is when you see these situations where someone has walked away from the faith. For example, just to help you see an example of this, in 1 John chapter 2, you see this very thing begin to play out. So, so the context here is a group of people who have been at some point in the past a part of the church. They have been at some point in the past professing believers in Jesus, but they have now walked away from Jesus. They have walked away from the faith. And John is writing to those who remain to try to help them in a very pastoral way, to help them process this, to help them understand this, to give them some kind of a theological framework to, in which to, to understand what's going on and also a, a challenge as to how they should proceed. And so he says here in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain or evident, clear, that they are all not of us. Their, their lack of perseverance, in other words, shows that, that they never really were one of them in the first place. Externally, at, at some point, they looked like they were all the same. Externally, at some point, they seemed to have a shared experience, but but in reality, in the, in the recesses of their heart, they weren't all the same. And the fact that they leave, the fact that they go away, shows that. It makes it clear. It makes it evident. He says, though, verse 20, But you, those who have remained, you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And now, having laid that theological groundwork, notice what he does in verse 24. Here's the challenge. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. The word abide means let it remain, let it dwell, let it live, let it hold firm and fast inside of you. Why? Because this is the promise he has made to us, eternal life. 
He calls them to perseverance. He, he calls them to let what they have heard from the beginning of their faith abide in them. Because if they hold fast to that truth, then, then the end, they hold fast to God himself, the end is to receive the promise that God has made, and that is the, is the promise of eternal life. It's, it's interesting, as you look through the New Testament examples of situations where people have walked away from their faith, there's never an instance where any plea is given to that person to return, at least not recorded in written scripture. But the one thing that is repeated in each and every instance, the overall, like, uh, emphasis of those passages is to call those who remain to remain. Remain. Abide. Persevere. So then, in light of some of the recent events here within the membership of Cornerstone and in obedience to God's word, I want to challenge those of you who remain to remain. Learn from the example of Israel. Not everyone who has a shared external experience will have a genuine, true, shared internal experience. Do not allow the deceitfulness of sin to harden your hearts and cause you to turn away from the truth of the gospel. Don't treat the blood of the covenant with which you have been bought as a light or inconsequential thing. Do not rebel against God's authority, against God's word, and turn away from his kingdom back to Satan's it is a lie to think you can ever be free. You are a, a subject of one kingdom or another. Do not abandon the church of Jesus Christ, which he himself is building and for which he died. Rather, hold fast to your confession of faith and persevere to the end. All the while, all the while as you persevere, as you hold fast, fast, knowing the truth of what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, that you are being guarded through faith for salvation for the end time, for the last time. So that today as we come to this table, we can do it as a visible, tangible expression of our continued trust in and commitment to Jesus Christ and as an expression of our faith in God's preservation of us until the end. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we, we have waded into deep and difficult waters in some respects this morning. But we recognize that you are sovereign and that what is given to us as a responsibility is to hold fast, to persevere, to abide, to remain in the truths that have been presented to us about the gospel, about who you are. And so help us to do so. Give us the commitment, work in us to will this, to persevere, but also help us to recognize that even as we are persevering as we are holding fast, as we are abiding and doing our responsibility in this, that it is actually you, your spirit at work in us, guarding us through faith that it's going to be revealed at the last time in Jesus. So, so help us to, to remember this balance, this understanding of, of our perseverance in your divine preservation of us today. We have we focused heavily on the, on the former, but the latter is true as well. I pray that you will protect the sheep of Cornerstone. 
protect their souls. Satan would, would take them away, would draw them away. The sin in their hearts would do the same. This world would do the same. So it is only by your grace in the end that we, we make it to the end and that we can lay on our deathbed confident that we know you, that we have known you, and that we are about to know you in a way that is so much greater than anything we could ever have imagined. And so we give you this time today and we present ourselves to you and we ask your, your spirit to work in us and through us to persevere in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.